Listeners, thank you so much for subscribing. We have an important announcement to make. World Policy on Air is going on hiatus for a few weeks. When we return, we're going to take the show in a new direction. So stay tuned. Exciting things are on the way. Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted January 26, 2018, we talk with Professor Dolly Sambodoro about her essay in the new WPJ winner issue, Rough Drafts, a personal account of the 25-year struggle to craft the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. We'll also spotlight other highlights of that issue, cover line Native Voices, about Indigenous peoples, their problems, protests, and progress around the globe. Podcast producer Isabel Vasquez here with excerpts from The Morning Brief, a daily digest of national security news from the Center on National Security at Fordham Law and supported by the Sufan Group, available at centeronnationalsecurity.org slash subscriptions. On Tuesday, France and the U.S. urged Turkey to exercise restraint in its offensive against a Turkish-held enclave in northern Syria, where the U.N. says an estimated 5,000 people have been displaced by the fighting. Turkish troops and allied Syrian fighters pressed ahead with their operations in Afrin for the fourth day on Tuesday and met resistance from the U.S.-allied Kurdish militia, the People's Defense Units, that controls the enclave. On Tuesday, Turkey said it killed at least 260 Syrian Kurdish fighters and ISIS militants in its offensive into Afrin. U.S. President Donald Trump is expected to raise concerns about Turkey's offensive in a call with Turkish President Tayyip Erdogan on Wednesday, according to a senior administration official. Iraq hopes to raise billions of dollars at a conference next month to fund reconstruction after its costly war against ISIS. But many fear the country's endemic corruption could undermine the appeal. Iraq declared victory over ISIS in December after driving the extremists from nearly all the territory they once held. But three years of grueling combat has taken a devastating toll, leaving entire towns and neighborhoods in ruins. Kuwait will host an international conference in mid-February aimed at rallying support for Iraq's reconstruction. The UN, the US, and Saudi Arabia support the initiative, the details of which have yet to be made public. Iraqi officials have estimated that they will need up to $100 billion to rebuild after the war against ISIS. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. The United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Well, the elders in my community were very concerned about treaty violations, and they concluded that we need to go to the international arena to try and get our treaties honored and respected. And from that initiative became the the negotiations on the UN Declaration, which resulted in the adoption of the Declaration by the Human Rights Council and then the General Assembly. Chief Wilton Littlechild of Canada's Cree Nation makes it sound so simple in a United Nations video last fall marking the 10th anniversary of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. But it took more than a quarter century of tough talks and delicate diplomacy involving many nations and native populations to get there. Dolly Sambodoro knows the story well. 
an associate professor of political science at the University of Alaska Anchorage. Professor Doro is also former chairperson of the UN Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues and helped draft the landmark document. For the new WPJ winter issue, she wrote the article Rough Drafts, a personal account of the 25-year struggle to craft the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And we talked about it recently for this podcast. Professor Dora, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you very much. When and how did you first become involved in the quest to create a Declaration on Indigenous Rights? My first involvement was as far back as 1984 when I participated in an assembly of the World Council for Indigenous Peoples, which was then a, a, a global Indigenous Peoples organization. And uh, I was asked to attend the meeting on behalf of the Inuit Circumpolar Council to determine if we should join that organization. And while I was there in Panama City, Panama, for uh, their annual assembly, I was asked if I would participate in uh, preparing a draft text that indigenous peoples could utilize to influence the process that started at the United Nations in Geneva, Switzerland uh, in 1982. And so that was my uh, first direct participation in trying to ensure that the voice of indigenous peoples was heard by the United Nations. And that um, initial uh, draft that was prepared by myself and uh, six or seven other indigenous peoples from various different parts of the world was then used uh, the following session of the Working Group on Indigenous Populations, which was mandated to begin the drafting of a declaration. We had hoped to deliver our draft from the WCIP meeting to say, well, here you go. This is a, this is a draft. Uh, so how did you expect at that early point that it was going to play out? Well, frankly, uh, myself and other indigenous peoples representatives didn't know that it would take so long for uh, the process to move forward, especially because we were um, unifying our positions on the indigenous side of the table. So, for example, that draft that came out of the meeting in Panama City, Panama, we uh, offered it to the uh, five independent human rights experts of the Working Group on Indigenous Populations with a view that, uh, all right, you have, a, you have a template to work from, and these are some of the key elements and articles and rights in this uh, draft from Indigenous people. So uh, here's a framework to begin, and... Uh, None of us, again, had any idea that it would take so long for us to influence not only these five members of the working group, but uh, later the the Commission on Human Rights. And, um, you know, even from 1984 to 1994, 10 years later, uh, it was uh, the, the working group managed to conclude their task and send a draft um, to their parent body at the subcommission, and then the subcommission sent that draft to the Commission on Human Rights, and 
then we met a whole nother procedure. So at the outset, we really didn't have an idea of um, the, the length of time which uh, it would take for us to finalize the draft declaration. Meanwhile, indigenous peoples were dying. Indigenous peoples were um, uh, being forced off their lands and out of their territories and you know, language loss, all kinds of other urgent matters were taking place. And here we were grinding away, trying to um, gain the, these minimum standards within the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Throughout the process, you write, Indigenous Peoples argued that their right to self-determination was already enshrined in key international agreements. Which ones and with what kind of language? Well, I think it's important for us to remember that the, the principle of the right of self-determination is enshrined in the United Nations Charter. Later, it is uh, elaborated upon as a right to self-determination in a number of very important international legal instruments, including the 1966 International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. So already in 1966, the international community affirmed that all peoples have the right to self-determination. It's also articulated as a right in what is commonly referred to as the 1970 Friendly Relations Declaration, wherein states elaborate upon various different important conditions by which member states can exercise the right to self-determination, including uh, important democratic uh, principles. So between the UN Charter and the two international covenants, and specifically Article One of those international covenants, as well as the 1970 Friendly Relations Declaration, uh, those um, various instruments establish uh, the right to self-determination as understood in international law and the view of indigenous peoples was that articulation applies equally to indigenous peoples as well. So how could UN member states oppose those rights for indigenous peoples? Well, unfortunately, UN member states uh, were of the view that uh, only they uh, were the uh, beneficiaries as nation states of the right to self-determination. And they were fearful, and I would say, again, as, as noted in my essay, they had unfounded fears of indigenous peoples through the UN Declaration they would desire complete and total independence uh, and uh, emerge as independent sovereigns, independent nation states. I mean, indeed, indigenous peoples are uh, quasi-nations and, and were both objects and subjects of international law well before the emergence of uh, the member states of the United Nations. Yet in the articulation of uh, the right to self-determination that we understood and continue to understand to this day uh, doesn't 
necessarily mean the, the right to secede. And member states like Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the United States were uh, wanting to ensure that they themselves could prescribe the content of the right to self-determination without um, necessarily the perspective of indigenous peoples. Um, and this was just highly problematic for, uh, and actually really is the undercurrent of our entire history of relations with uh, the UN member states that um, we have the right to self-determination and the right to determine all of its various different aspects, uh, just in the same way that the right is articulated in the international covenants, for example. And so the idea of um, the the idea of of states um, prescribing the content of the right to self-determination was um, completely inconsistent with the right to self-determination. Um, so it took a it took a long time to uh, articulate the the views and position of indigenous peoples against this rigid view of the primacy of UN member states when it came to sovereignty and self-determination. In 1988-89 as the UN draft was moving forward you also were involved in parallel efforts on behalf of the indigenous at the International Labor Organization ILO but you say it brought out the worst in some member states and more about that misguided fear of secession talk about that growing opposition starting with Canada well the ILO is a tripartite organization and uh, what was happening in, in the context of a tripartite organization, and, and let me just uh, note, when I say tripartite, I mean not only the member states of the ILO, but also the employers, the corporations, uh, as well as uh, workers' unions or members of the ILO. So it was within this context that... Uh, the member states of the ILO could kind of link arms with corporations as, as employers uh, to articulate their views and positions on the rights of indigenous people. So that was one problematic dimension that left indigenous peoples in the, in the marginalized or really in the back of the room uh, with uh, very little voice. But uh, in addition to that, the International Labor Organization has very limited capacity and, um, quite frankly, uh, no competency to deal with the political rights of indigenous peoples. And so against that backdrop, governments like Canada, Australia, the United States, New Zealand were able to try to short-circuit the discussion about the right of self-determination in the United Nations declaration process by uh, addressing, for example, the uh, definition of the, the term peoples as articulated in the International Labor Organization uh, Convention. And they articulated many of the same arguments that they were using within the halls of the United Nations and, and to some extent were more successful within uh, the ILO. But fortunately, the, the ILO um, recognized that 
they didn't have the competency nor the mandate to deal with the political right of self-determination in favor of indigenous peoples and were able to make that public pronouncement later. And this had a, a, a positive in my view, at least a, a positive effect on how it was being articulated within the United Nations. You did get a hearing from government representatives in Canberra, and then were impressed by the way uh, Australia uh, lowered its opposition uh, to self-determination. Uh, you say that they were uh, carefully couched but intellectually honest in their use of language. Tell us more about that. Well, um, I was fortunate to have had an opportunity to uh, travel to Australia. I was invited by Australian Aboriginal organizations uh, to attend um, a conference that was being held there. And if I remember correctly, it may have been the, the lead up to a, a world conference on racism and racial discrimination. And while I was in uh, Australia, I was asked by one of their uh, diplomats to participate in a very informal meeting to discuss uh, the concerns that the Australian government had about how the right to self-determination was uh, being reflected in the UN declaration. And it was an opportunity to share with them the the balance that has already been articulated by states themselves in the various different international uh, legal instruments uh, that safeguarded their view and their concern about territorial integrity. And in the end of the day, that was the, the, the pivotal argument that, that UN member states wanted some certainty about their territorial integrity. But if one looks at, for example, and specifically the 1970 De Friendly Relations Declaration, it's very clear that they already enjoy the, the safeguards um, to territorial integrity as long as they behave in a way that's not oppressive toward indigenous peoples or others within uh, UN member states. And so it was an opportunity to uh, articulate that the safeguards already exist in, in international law uh, in favor of states as long as they behave uh, according to the democratic principles that they themselves had already uh, affirmed in various international instruments. Um, and so in this way, Australia was able to kind of turn the corner on an articulation of the right of self-determination and acknowledge that, yes, it, it uh, is an equal right of all peoples. Um, they didn't go so far as the statement of the government of Canada in 1996 that all peoples have the right of self-determination, including indigenous peoples. But uh, as I say in the essay, at least they were being intellectually honest about the way the right was being argued uh, in favor of indigenous peoples by indigenous peoples within this human rights standard setting uh, exercise. So it, it, it was an important time. The 
The other factor, however, was that it was the Keating government that was um, uh, in, in power at the time, and they had a much more favorable um, view of the rights of indigenous peoples. And so I think that, that combination of the, the, the Keating government, the labor government, and uh, the arguments of indigenous peoples, uh, and the again, to use the term of uh, Stephen Tolbert, the unfounded fear of uh, UN member states satisfied to a large extent their concerns at the time. But then there was a change of government in Australia with what impact on its position and uh, that of other states, particularly Canada and the U.S.? Well, unfortunately, um, I think that the the worst was revealed under the Howard government in the context of um, Australia and the and later the Harper government of um, of Canada and between uh, the Howard government and the Harper government uh, they solidified their views in opposition uh, to the articulation of the right of self determination of Indigenous peoples in the context of the UN Declaration and this was this was um, uh, a, a really difficult uh, battle, but uh, fortunately, um, uh, before the Howard government, the the Cretian government um, was in place, and uh, the government of Canada came out, as I mentioned earlier, uh, with a position in 1996 that left a speechless for a moment uh, within uh, the Commission on Human Rights Working Group on the Draft Declaration. The government of Canada uh, actually came forward and said that that they recognized the right of self-determination of all peoples, including indigenous peoples, and everyone was a bit stunned. And, of course, we carefully... uh, uh, reviewed their statement after they delivered it on the floor of the Commission on Human Rights Working Group on the Draft Declaration and uh, saw the important uh, change in their um, in their position, um, but wanted to be certain that, okay, did we hear this correctly and what exactly did we hear? Um, so this, this, this was really an important uh, turning point Um, in the whole discussion on the right to self-determination as affirmed in the UN Declaration. By 2006, after more than 20 years of fragile negotiations, you write, a balance had been achieved. What were the key elements? Well, the the key elements really, um, as far as the the UN Declaration is concerned, the key elements... um, are, for example, in the preamble as well as in the operative uh, paragraphs of the UN Declaration that indigenous peoples are equal to all other peoples. Uh, In addition, there are um, important affirmations of the right of self-determination and its attachment to indigenous peoples consistent with international law in the Declaration. The reference and the um, uh, important explicit recognition of the purposes and principles of the United Nations Charter, the fact that the right of self-determination is affirmed in the UN Charter, as well as um, 
Article 3 of the UN Declaration, which does affirm that Indigenous peoples have the right to self-determination and mirrors the language of the International Covenant. Uh, in addition, the um, articulation of uh, the various different important substantive rights of Indigenous peoples in the uh, cluster of articles related to lands, territories, and resources. I mean, there are a range of different examples of how this important balance uh, it, between rights and the concern of uh, member states in relation to territorial integrity are articulated in the UN Declaration. Um, and one has to recognize that the, the rights affirmed in the UN Declaration are interrelated, indivisible, and interdependent. Uh, so the preambular language as well as the operative articles um, have to be read in context with uh, one another, as well as with the spirit and intent of the UN Declaration as an important international human rights instrument. And um, one will see from the beginning of the uh, declaration to the end of the declaration, Article 46, that uh, a, an important balance uh, as far as um, the right of self-determination has effectively been achieved in the UN declaration and that there shouldn't be and isn't really a threat to the territorial integrity of uh, UN member states, uh, including those important conditions articulated in the 1970 Friendly Relations Declaration. So there, there are um, important elements that have been uh, carefully balanced within the UN Declaration in, in terms of the right to self-determination. But there was more strategizing to be done prior to the first meeting of the newly formed UN Human Rights Council. How did you see the prospects at that point, the risk of making more changes in the text, the nations most likely and least likely to be won over? Oh, this was, um, this was a really important uh, period of time. Um, and the negotiations, negotiations were, were fragile in large part uh, because we were beginning to hear uh, from um, states that hadn't been as actively involved as Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the United States. Uh, Asian states were intent upon gaining a, an explicit definition of the term indigenous peoples. They wanted to talk about the scope of application of the UN Declaration. Um, other states, uh, including uh, the, the Kansas state, were behind the scenes doing what they could to influence uh, the, the views of um, uh, not only the Asian states, but also the African states. And uh, we, were, we were quite concerned that if we continued to have uh, negotiation and debate about the content of the UN Declaration, that it would be uh, further undermined or diminished uh, if we continued. And uh, fortunately, uh, the ambassador of Mexico, uh, the first president of the Human Rights Council, Luis Alfonso de Alba, 
uh, saw that uh, there was uh, sufficient support within uh, the, the newly formed Human Rights Council to adopt the declaration uh, by the Human Rights Council at its first meeting to uh, fend off any other efforts to diminish the standards that had been achieved uh, since 1982. What was the final vote in the council, uh, your reaction to it, and the situation that you face next uh, at the UN itself in New York, particularly with those African nations? Well, the, to be honest, I don't recall the numbers. I know that we did have a well, overwhelming majority of the members of the uh, the 47 members of the of the Human Rights Council, and that we succeeded in its adoption by the council. But I apologize, I don't remember the exact uh, numbers. But the, the the first session of the Human Rights Council did adopt by vote. The, the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, and in our minds, this was a, a major and significant victory, and that we could then carry the Declaration across the water to the UN General Assembly, and that it would speedily uh, be adopted by the, the UN General Assembly, and that uh, we could then celebrate our, our decades of work uh, within the human rights regime of the UN based in, in Geneva. Um, Little did we know uh, that we would we would meet further opposition at that moment. But uh, regard, regardless of the of the outcome of um, of the vote by the Human Rights Council, uh, we did feel as though uh, this was a major and significant accomplishment in the context of the Human Rights Council. And again, about the African nations, you mentioned uh, some detail about the Asians, but you were surprised at the position taken by the African nations. Oh, yes. Once, it, uh, once the declaration was delivered by the Human Rights Council for consideration by the UN General Assembly, uh, this new dynamic emerged, and in our mind, really at the 11th hour, and that was on the part of the African group, which... In, in my uh, estimation, was heavily um, influenced by Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the United States. Uh, we later uh, learned that uh, behind the scenes, the Kansas group, as we referred to them as, uh, did have a substantial influence over the African group, especially in the way that uh, language concerning the right to self-determination was articulated in the UN declaration. Uh, this Kansas group um, behind the scenes influenced the African nations who had largely been very quiet or, or really absent from uh, the process that took place in, in Geneva to achieve the declaration. And the, uh, de the desire on the part of this Kansas group was being articulated then by uh, the African nations who had a, a flurry of amendments that they wanted to address uh, within the General Assembly. We saw that this would be highly dangerous to continue having uh, so-called negotiations with the UN member states at that point. And um, the key was really ensuring that um, the right of self-determination as well as rights to lands, territories, and resources, 
remained intact as it emerged in the Human Rights Council. And so that the pivotal point was uh, Article 46 and this, uh, in the minds at least of the Kansas group, of this outstanding question about uh, securing territorial integrity, which is a bit ironic when you realize that, of course, throughout our entire history, um, that these same uh, UN member states have devastated the territorial integrity of indigenous peoples. Um, and really this, this, this Kansas group uh, did what they possibly could through the African group to get what they ultimately wanted in terms of uh, the way Article 3 and the right of self-determination is affirmed in the UN Declaration. Despite the backstage maneuvering, uh, the, the uh, declaration was passed in 2007, uh, although with Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the U.S., the Kansas nations voting no. Uh, but their opposition didn't last. What happened? Well, um, I give credit to those indigenous peoples in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the U.S. Uh, they, there was um, a continuing effort to influence their views and positions. Uh, part of it, uh, part of the dynamic was, of course, a change in government. Uh, and um, over time, all four of those member states that, that voted no on uh, the UN Declaration on September 13, 2007, subsequently uh, publicly pronounced their support for the UN Declaration. Um, so in the end of the day, and by, by the end of 2010, uh, all four of those governments, uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the United States that voted against the UN Declaration in 2007 have changed their position, again, publicly pronounced their support, so at this point in time, the UN Declaration, in my view, has achieved a, a universal consensus or an overwhelming uh, consensus. And I, I should note that in 2007, uh, when the vote was taken, 143 UN member states voted in favor of the declaration. So this is a this is a pretty overwhelming number and I think at the time there were 192 UN member states so it was quite it's quite significant that uh, those 143 votes in favor the subsequent uh, support of Canada Australia New Zealand and the United States really does uh, reflect a, a universal consensus on the minimum standards uh, to safeguard indigenous peoples across the globe while the UN Declaration does not create any new rights, and some states assert that it is not legally binding, you're proud of its significant aid to indigenous peoples around the world. Give us some examples. Well, some examples um, have emerged in the various different uh, treaty bodies of the United Nations. In fact, it's kind of interesting that, that some of these same human rights treaty bodies uh, within the United Nations human rights regime began to articulate the uh, important elements of the UN Declaration, even when it was in, in its draft form. Uh, but as far as um, 
after its adoption by the UN General Assembly in 2007, we've seen uh, the Human Rights Committee, uh, the Committee on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, as well as the uh, Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, articulating the important standards of the UN Declaration, especially where there are serious, urgent, and contentious um, uh, battles between indigenous peoples and uh, member states. There are specific cases in which each of these human rights uh, treaty bodies uh, have um, addressed the human rights violations of indigenous peoples uh, in Costa Rica, in Sweden, in Brazil, and every single day we see new and different um, pronouncements by the treaty bodies in favor of the rights of indigenous peoples as affirmed in the UN Declaration. So how and where do you see the indigenous building further on the UN Declaration to enhance their rights and their situation, economic, political, social, and how do you see your role in the process? Well, this is really the, the key at this moment in time is the, is the implementation of the Declaration, that now that we've achieved the, the UN Declaration, uh, we are still seeking um, its full application in, in the most relevant ways out there and on the ground within the communities of indigenous peoples. I mean, for example, how do indigenous peoples enjoy the right to self-determination? Do they actually exercise and enjoy their rights to their lands, territories, and resources? Do they enjoy things like the right to establish their own educational institutions and determine the curriculum? and? Do indigenous women uh, have the safeguards uh, against uh, violence being perpetrated against them? So it's really uh, now about the implementation at the grassroots level, at the national and domestic level to uh, breathe life into the rights that have been affirmed in the UN Declaration. As far as, as, far as my role in the process of implementation of the UN Declaration is continuing to educate the public, uh, society, about the rights affirmed in the UN Declaration. And thank you for this opportunity to, to share um, my views as, as a way of increasing awareness and educating uh, all people in society, and especially governments, uh, about the content and the rights affirmed in the UN Declaration. So I'll continue to uh, use my voice to educate people, but also uh, to use my voice uh, in advocacy to safeguard the rights of indigenous people and to ultimately gain the exercise and enjoyment of the rights affirmed in the UN Declaration. Professor Doro, thank you. Thank you very much. Dali Sambodoro is former chairperson of the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues, an associate professor of political science at the University of Alaska Anchorage. 
She is also the Alaska member of the Inuit Circumpolar Council Advisory Committee on UN Issues. For World Policy Journal's new winter issue, Professor Doro wrote Rough Drafts, a personal account of the 25-year struggle to craft the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Also featured in the new winter issue, Coverline Native Voices, you'll find articles on indigenous solidarity at Standing Rock, on colonialism and climate justice in the Caribbean, and on rediscovery of native roots in Norway. Also report about India's pressure on the Rohingya refugees, Portugal's bust and boom economic prospects, and Nigeria's growing cinema industry, Nollywood, and much more. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Jessica Laudis, Managing Editor Laurel Jerombeck, Podcast Producer Isabel Vazquez. I'm David Alpern. Thank you.